Hey there, educational rock stars. Are you feeling overwhelmed with lesson planning for your English language learners? Well, I've got some exciting news for you. Introducing our upcoming free webinar, Simplify Your Approach, Three Time-Saving Routines for ELL Success. Join me for a power-packed 45 minutes that's set to revolutionize your teaching strategy. In this webinar, we'll dive into three practical, easy-to-implement routines that will not only enhance your ELL teaching methods, but also save you hours of planning time. Yes, hours. So whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, these insights are tailored to help everyone make the most of their teaching time. Plus, you'll leave this webinar ready to implement these routines the next day. So mark your calendars for our two upcoming dates. I don't want you to miss this opportunity to transform your ELL lesson planning. To reserve your spot, simply sign up at www.equippingells.com slash routines. Trust me, your future self will thank you for it. I'll see you at the webinar. Teaching ELL students is a privilege and a joy. Is it easy? No way. But with the right support, you can feel empowered to tackle each day with ease and confidence. I'm your host, Beth Boshe, founder of Inspiring Young Learners. With over 10 years of teaching both nationally and internationally, I know what it takes to ensure that your ELL students have what they need to thrive today, tomorrow, and for life. I'm on a mission to empower you to equip your English language learners. Welcome to Equipping ELLs. Let's get to today's episode. You are listening to episode 20 of the Equipping ELLs podcast. Today, I am so excited to share with you a very dear friend of mine, Shelly Feliu-Love. She is a teacher here in Panama. We taught together for many years. And as soon as I started this podcast, I knew she was someone I wanted to have on because she has just a wealth of knowledge and expertise. She's now in a leadership role working at an international school, so the population is majority second language learners, third language learners, and so on. So she brings to us today just insight into her specialty of gifted and talented students and how to really support our English language learners that fall into this category. So you are not going to want to miss this episode because she shares so many tangible, practical ways to assess, to be looking for areas that our students really are gifted, even if they aren't proficient in English yet. And I know this is something that's tricky to figure out. So listen to today. And even if you don't have a gifted and talented program, you're going to come away with knowing just how to really support and have high expectations for all your learners. So let's get to the episode. Hey, Shelly, welcome to the show. I'm so happy that you're here today. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me, Beth. Shelly is one of the most incredible educators that I've ever met, and I've had the opportunity to work with her. And so I had her come on the show today because she is just a wealth of information about working in an international school in an international environment with students from all around the world in the same classrooms, a variety of languages, and more importantly, how to support 
the gifted and talented in those classrooms, even when they might not be proficient in English. So I'm really excited to get to this topic because it's one that needs to be talked about more and we need to be advocating for those students. So let's start with, why don't you just share a little bit about your background in education and what your current position looks like? Sure thing. So let's see, I trained at Auburn University in elementary education and I actually had a double major. So I also majored in Spanish language. And so I think that made me already more sensitive to language learners because I'd been a language learner myself. And anyway, from Auburn, I ended up heading on to the state of Georgia, where I taught for five years. I taught third grade at one of the public schools just north of Atlanta and loved it. And that's where I also got my gifted and talented endorsement. After those five years, I was getting a little restless and ended up heading down to Panama It's been a perfect fit. I'm still here. You're 10 going strong. (laughs) And I love it. I love working with language learners. But although that's not my specific focus, particularly now, um, I'm the curriculum coordinator at an IBPYP school down here. We have students from over 40 nations, and I've taught everything from fifth grade to sixth grade, including sixth grade as a part of middle school, math and science during the pandemic. That was interesting. (laughs) And also I've been the gifted and talented coordinator at the school. And also at the same time, I was the math instructional coach for the primary school. So about grades kindergarten all the way through fifth grade was my mathematical focus. So you've worn a lot of hats. (laughs) Yes, definitely. As many teachers do, but each one brings its own challenges and I enjoyed them all. Yes, that's wonderful. So I want to hit on first, before we get into more of the topic for today's show, I want to hit on your, just your viewpoint, your experience of teaching in the States versus teaching internationally, because we know there's increased of language learners across the states worldwide. Every state, you're going to have an increase of ELLs coming into the classrooms. So we're working with really diverse multicultural classrooms, which is such a gift. And the same thing, like you're saying, in the international schools, you know, you're working with 40 different nations. So the classrooms, again, are very diverse, tons of different languages spoken. But I know you have felt what I've seen too, is just a difference in the language is supported and the interactions between different cultures. Can you share a little bit of your, your viewpoint on that? Yeah, let's see in the States versus here in Panama, I've seen a difference. I haven't been in the States as recently, but what I saw was that in general, the the language learners, although they're increasing in number, they're kind of the few and far between. And so they kind of are the overlooked. It depends, of course, on where you are and what district, if you're more in the city or more rural, if you have more of those students or not. But regardless, because they're maybe struggling to keep up with the regular curriculum for one reason or another, they can be the ones that fall through those cracks. And that's definitely not what we want as educators versus when you're in a setting that is more like a maybe a bilingual charter school in the States or an international school where we are now or where I am now, you expect language learning to be a part of what everybody's doing. So we constantly speak about at our school about how everybody is a language learner. The teachers are still language learners. And we talk about that with our students as well. So I think there's a mindset difference maybe between the U.S. and being in an international school, not in all schools, of course. But when I go and introduce myself to students at the start of the year, I talk about how 
they're learning, but also how we're learning, how them as students, how maybe there's a word in Spanish that I just can't remember, or I ask them, or I want to learn how to say hello in a different language. Or I know you talk about a lot, like learning how to say the students' names correctly and the power of that. You're just more aware being in a different country of those little tiny things that maybe you wouldn't be as aware of if you're in uh, quote unquote normal school. Yes, I, I completely agree. And I think you hit that spot on of you know, the expectation in an international school is that they're all language learners. You're all learning a language. You know, you have multiple students coming in who know two or three languages, and that's something that they're proud of. We're, you know, unfortunately, sometimes in the States, and hopefully this is shifting, where they're they're more embarrassed of it, or they don't want people to know that they speak another language at home. And so I think you hit that exactly in the head when you said it's a mindset shift. And, and those people who are listening, you know, they're, they're advocates for our ELLs. And so I know that they agree with this of, and hoping that there's, there's this shift happening in the classrooms across the United States that they see being bilingual, trilingual is really an incredible gift and superpower because we get to see that here on this side. And honestly, I mean, I know for the students I had and myself included, not, you know, I know Spanish now, but For those who only were monolingual, they really felt left out and they were really encouraged because of seeing their peers know two or three languages to want to learn more. And so it really had that positive impact, you know, in the classrooms of creating that culture of knowing, you know, using multiple languages throughout the day. And it was really a cool experience. So We're going to move into identifying gifted and talented ELLs, even if they're not proficient yet, because I know that this is something that many teachers have on their hearts of how do we make sure that we don't just look at these students as deficits based as, oh, they're not there yet. They're not proficient in English yet. And just write them off of having the ability to be involved in a gifted and talented program. So you have been in that process of identifying students. And I would love for you to share just more about that and how teachers can identify. Yeah, absolutely. I think you hit on the kind of the key point is teacher attitude to start with, because, you know, you need to go into the start of each year with the open mind that all of your students are learners and all of them are capable of learning. Right. So we start with that very open minded mindset of, hey, all of my students can achieve. All right. So you go in with that open mindset that all of your students can learn. And that mindset helps you to see more of the strengths of the students. And that, I think, is one of the first key things for being able to identify a student, because often it comes first and foremost from a referral. If you have a gifted program at your school, because a lot of schools don't. But regardless, you want to be able to identify and push all of your students. Many students are identified first and foremost from a referral. It can be a referral from a teacher It can be a referral from a parent, which is really key. Often parents know that their child has some exceptional abilities that you're not going to know because you haven't been with that child for the first five, six, 12 years of their life. And the parents have. Sometimes there's also self-referrals where the students themselves can say, hey, I'd like to be considered for this program. Now, you have to be careful with those, of course. And you're not going to just... Day one, say, oh, yeah, sure, <laughs> prefer yourself, great. Um, and your language learners probably aren't going to be the first ones to say that either. But within those first few weeks, really getting to know the students, having that openness to see what are their strengths, what are their abilities, and having your 
first couple of weeks open up to be able to give students that opportunity to shine in different ways is so important because not only are you able to see different facets and assets of every single child, but you're also able to see like what they can do. And that also allows you to build that relationship with them, right? So relationship is one of the key things that we know as educators really can make or break a child's year, their relationship with each other, but also with the teacher. And if they believe that the teacher believes in them and cares about them, then they will perform better. And so if you're able to have a good relationship with those students, if you're able to do those little things like saying their name right, if you're able to do things like I used to put with magnets on my on my teacher desk, like hello in different languages, like just little things like that, finding ways that you know what language they speak at home, trying to incorporate that in different ways, trying to find ways that you're able to connect with them or you're able to see that they tune in a little bit more or they participate in a different way. It could be through art. It could be through some sort of artistic expression. It could be on the computer. It could be lots of different ways. But I think that's really the first thing is like how you approach your year for all of your students that sets the tone for you being able to identify any gifted learner, but particularly your ELLs. So that would be the first thing that I would say. From there, it can be challenging. (laughs) (laughs) Teachers already want to do those sorts of things, but you can still miss an EL learner who has exceptional abilities. Hey, teachers. I'm interrupting this episode to ask you a quick question. How different would your life be if you could confidently plan effective and engaging lessons for your yellow students in a fraction of the time? I created my membership equipping ELLs to do just that. When you join, you gain instant access to the exact resources you need, proven and prepped for you, plus a supportive private community of like-minded educators. Join us today at www.equippingells.com. Now back to the episode. Most schools, especially in the States, but I think worldwide at this point, have some sort of standardized assessment that they do towards the beginning of the year. In Georgia, where I taught, we did Iowa Test of Basic Skills, and we also did the COGAP that was required for all third grade at the start of the year. Those are really good first screeners for you. Where I am now, we do the MAP test, Measures of Academic Progress, and that we use as a first screener. So we look at those test results as the achievement portion of qualification for a gifted program. Gifted programs, like formal programs, typically have at least two qualification areas, and those are typically the academic achievement and cognitive ability. Now, yes, you will miss students with that, but Regardless, that's kind of your next best way to start to get an identification. Some of those students will have modifications if their language level is so low because most of the tests are done in English. One thing that we've done is we've provided our MAP tests just this year. We did them in Spanish as well because we have a lot of Spanish students. And that's another way for us to see, does this student have a great academic achievement in their native language or their mother tongue that realize. And so sometimes you see a huge discrepancy and wow, they're like way excelling in Spanish. They're really struggling in English, but this tells me that they have the capability. And so that's one thing. If there's a way for you to get a different language for one of those tests to test a language ability, 
in their mother tongue, that can be one thing that really helps you see where they're at. So achievement is just kind of the overall like academic, what students are typically supposed to be able to do performance-wise at a certain grade level. The cognitive abilities test, which I mentioned that we used in Georgia, we partially used it for being able to screen for giftedness as well, because in my district, we had a specific gifted program. And you're typically looking for students that are in like that 97th, 98th, 99th percentile, and they're scoring higher than the majority of other students at their age. And we look at it by age, not by grade level as well, to be able to give us a child a fair comparison. So that's one thing to look at is compared to other children of their age also. Also related to that one, normally for an ELL, they typically excel in the nonverbal section of that type of because it is more visual as long as they can understand enough of the instructions, which there's always an example instruction, then you're able to see, wow, that student just knocked that one out of the park. They struggled with maybe the mathematical reasoning piece, or they struggled with the, the verbal analogies and the language piece, but nonverbal wise, they're there. So that's something to definitely look at is if you have access to a cognitive abilities test of some sort, the WISC is another one that assesses some of those pieces that are like nonverbal or spatial reasoning, those ones you can look at like in those specific areas, does the student shine there? So another thing that you can look for and that we did recently at my school was I looked at all the data for all of the students that we had identified for our program because we normally have our academic achievement test first and then we screen and decide if we want to do the cognitive abilities test so we don't just over-test kids or just test kids just to test them. Instead of looking at like the 95th percentile or the 97th percentile on the academic achievement piece, we looked at all the data and said, hey, which students would we have missed, particularly as language learners, but which ones would we have not identified if we had stuck with the 95th percentile cutoff? And so from the data that we had, we found that the happy medium was the 92nd percentile. If we stuck with that as our initial piece, like lowering it a little bit, but still remaining like true to what needs to be considered, the 92nd percentile for us, for our data, for our community showed the students that we wouldn't have identified otherwise, that would give them the chance to go and do the COGAT test and then to be identified. Now, you'll have some that would test through the academic achievement piece and then test with the COGAT and not get in. But that's one thing to consider as well is what are your criteria or if they're a language learner, lower that criteria initially on the achievement piece so you can see where they are with their cognitive ability. So that's testing wise, but there's a lot of other arenas as well to look at <laughs> for your language learners. There's looking at the student's creativity. Are they a leader? Especially if you have like a pocket of those types of students that speak a common language in their more kind of downtimes, whether it's, you know, less teacher supervision at recess or at lunch or in the hallways or even when they're in small groups. Do you notice that they kind of slip into that other language and they take the lead? That can be a piece to look at as well. Additionally, looking at or asking them to bring a book from home that they read in their mother tongue. You might have a student who, you know, 
for English language purposes, they're reading, you know, Bob and Jane sort of level books because they're still understanding how the English language works itself. So they're at basic phonics levels. But if you look at something that they're reading when they go home and they're reading in their mother tongue, they might be all the way into Harry Potter or beyond. And you can tell, oh, wait, they do have a crazy ability here, but I'm not seeing it yet in my class. So that's another just kind of key thing to look at and to ask the child about. Those would be my like main pointers to start with. <laughs> no, that was fantastic. I loved just your breakdown and walking the listeners through, you know, how to identify the steps you take. I love that you were able to screen this year with the map testing in Spanish for those students. I'm sure it wasn't, did you do all students in Spanish or just the ones, I mean, the Spanish speaking ones or those particular grade levels. We, we actually did for everybody because we wanted to see the growth of all students in Spanish and that's the goal of the map test. It was challenging for some of them. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, it, I just love that because Absolutely. You can see those students who are so strong then in their native language, you know, you, even if they don't end up being gifted, you know, and can have confidence. Okay. They're going to be able to transfer a lot of these cognitive skills and academic skills as they learn English. And if you see someone who's really struggling in their native language, you know, they're going to probably need some more intervention support as they learn English. Yeah. And we did that too, for just like being able to see even students that need additional support, like okay, they're not doing well in our regular classes, but in terms of in their native language, are they struggling there as well? And if so, then maybe this gives us a hint that there's something that's yes. really needing to dig into and find out how to help that kid. That's huge. Exactly. That's another conversation, but just that identifying, you know, is it a language issue? Is there is there something else going on, a learning disability? So that's a great suggestion as well. And I know not all schools have that, but even advocating to your administrators, if you have a high population of Spanish speakers or if the maps in other languages, getting licenses for that, it could be a very powerful way to get an inside look at your students. I also love, you know, the point that you said at the beginning of taking that time, those first couple of weeks of finding what lights up your students. And I think even if it's not even identifying for gifted, but just seeing, you know, having puzzles out one day, like spatial reasoning puzzles, if you're working with older kids or adding in some sort of creativity and seeing the students that really express themselves when they get to do something creative. You know, I think that's so important that we are missing sometimes in our classrooms these days is getting right into academics instead of finding opportunities to get to know our students through multiple different exposures and ways to really catch those glimpses of what do they enjoy, what what lights them up. Getting to know add on to that too. One one thing that I just thought about was how I often had a, a chessboard out in my classroom, and that one's one that your stronger students who are quite potentially gifted will gravitate towards. Now you can go into this, that more nurture or nature sort of piece, but often, even if they haven't ever played it before, they'll start to pick it up very quickly. And so when you see that, like how quickly are they picking things up, whether it's the English language itself, and you can see that they're relying upon their own mother tongue, or it can be a game. It could be as simple as checkers or Chinese checkers or whatever. Another thing I just mentioned is there's a slight bias towards the Asian population being more identified compared to other traditional ELs. And so that's something just to kind of check your bias sort of Mm -hmm, piece. mm -hmm. 
because we often think, oh, well, the, the, the Asian students, they excel in math. And if they excel in math, then therefore they might be gifted. And so we look for it maybe more with one population than another. And goes back to that being open from the very start and saying, hey, all of my students could be these high achieving gifted students, but I need to look at all of them with that attitude and set the bar high so they can show me what they can do. Absolutely. And that's why I think this is such an important topic because, you know, a lot of our, like, there's so many studies that show when our ELLs feel like we're dumbing things down and we're watering it down for them and we have very low expectations, they feel that. And they, a lot of times will just check out then if that's, you know, if this is all the teacher expects from me and it, it really backfires, even though sometimes we think we're doing it to help them. But when we raise that bar and we set those high standards and there's obviously different ways that we're going to have to scaffold for different levels and differentiate and give them the support. But I love that you said, you know, finding if there's a leader in a group that you see when they, when they move into their native language in non-teaching times, you know, watching out for those kids, because the power of, of getting that one leader and, you know, really sparking that fire and that desire for that student to learn can really impact a whole bunch of the other students. When that student, instead of going for maybe he's bored in class or she's bored in class and not saying anything, and then going to being challenged and excited about learning. I mean, that can really transform a group. Or being able to take that into a positive leadership role, because if they're bored and they're dying inside a little bit in your class, not that we want that, but some of them are. Yep. They often are going to be doing those misbehaviors and then you start to feel frustrated with them and then you're not helping them and they're not helping you. You know, you want to empower them to be a positive leader. Exactly. Yeah. It makes me think of a student I had, I had a group of four newcomers and he was so smart and he wasn't identified because he didn't speak at all. He, he learned how to play the system and, and was fine with it. And once we realized how much he knew, I mean, he excelled and he was, he was acting out a lot out of boredom because in his native language, he was reading chapter books. I mean, just think of that for a second, these students who are coming fifth and sixth grade as newcomers or, you know, yeah, coming as newcomers essentially. And when, if they're in their native country, we're reading chapter books, we're already on to advanced levels of math, of science, and now they're put back at a basic level. I mean, that's a lot to handle as a fifth and sixth grader when you're already feeling insecure, all these other things go on at that age. And so I think it's important to stop and think about our students as well of what they're going through as we work with them in different ways, because having that empathy in that that understanding of their experience is so important. Absolutely. Now, Shelly, let's talk about how teachers can help support, you know, even just challenging, like we're saying, the importance of setting high standards, high expectations, challenging our language learners. Can you share some tips of how we can do that in the classroom? If, you know, I know there's a lot of listeners who might say, we don't have a gifted program. Right. You know, so for those who are just working with students that they want, their heart is to really, you know, challenge them and help push their students to, to exceed. What would you say are some tips? Absolutely. There are a lot of things you can do and often gifted programs are maybe a pullout program or it's one day a week. So regardless, typically you're going to have those students in your class the majority of the week. And 
you don't want them just living for the gifted program. You want them excelling in your class as well, being a positive leader, like we talked about and, and learning. That's the goal of being in school <laughs> is learning. So you really want to be able to push them. I think one of the first things is I'm thinking towards math because I was the math coach. And one thing you can do to help really any of your students to excel is a small detail of like putting their names into word problems. So like making it something that's engaging for them because they're a part of it somehow. So changing your word problems just a little bit can help. Also providing choice of numbers within problems. So giving students the option of, you know, if you're doing a multiplication assessment or even just a practice, choose the problem that you want to show me what you can do. So you give them kind of three levels of options. You know, you can show me 12 times four, you can show me 22 times six, or you can show me 372 multiplied by 18. And they'll rise to the challenge of whichever one they want. And I mentioned those in particular, not in the context of word problems, because for an ELL, the word problems are going to be more challenging. And therefore, if you can take the number piece out of the context of the broader picture, then they're going to be able to show you more of what they can do, what they're capable of, because they don't have the words all there as extra confusion. Most of the time, ELLs will, especially gifted ELLs, they'll look through the word problem, they'll connect to whatever operation you've been working on in class, and they'll just do that with the numbers that they see in the problem anyway. So the word problem might not be as confusing for the the gifted learner who's an ELL. That might be another way you can notice some things about how they do it. <laughs> What, what they're capable of, but being able to just isolate and show them, hey, let's just work with the numbers right now, but giving them a choice. Also, extension menus or choice boards are definitely very powerful for any of your gifted students. We've done menus with you know appetizers and main courses and desserts that they can choose from and always having some choices that are a little bit more accessible for our language learners is is great, but you still have the choice and you still have the push to keep them going that one step further. I think too, like what you mentioned before, having some puzzles around the classroom, simple things like that, where there's something that's not so language intensive that they can take a break, but they can also still be using their mind in a different way or having some sort of art center. Also providing choice in terms of how they express themselves or show what they know. So having some assessments that are more open-ended. So you might have, you know, your standard that's about westward expansion and you need them to show you what they understand about this historical time period and what was going on in the U.S. during that time, so on and so forth. Okay, you could have them write an essay about it, but you could also have them make a skit or create some sort of drawing or poem to go with it. So just providing some of that choice really allows them to show the depth of their understanding or the extent of their knowledge and understanding because they might know a lot in their native language about some of that, or they might be able to have resources that you give them that are more in their native language that helps them to be able to go further and to make the connections to what you're doing in your regular class. Those would be just some tips right off the bat. I love it. That was, that was gold right there. I feel so inspired. 
I want to, I want to end today with, because I know how Shelly teaches and I, I remember her classroom clearly. And I think that you were, you're just the queen of games and things like that. And I love that you said how, you know, having those simple activities around the room that help take away some of that language heaviness that our students face each day as they're in the classrooms. I love that. And I know you mentioned chess puzzles. I'm thinking even like of a Sudoku bulletin board, an interactive bulletin board, something like that when you have early finishers and it gives them still that mental strengthening without the heavy language. Do you have any other suggestions of of activities like that? Yeah. I personally also love like it's a puzzle, but it's not your typical jigsaw puzzle. The ones that are more 3D puzzles like the and still not 3D jigsaw puzzles because there's those as well. But the ones that are <laughs> kind of like Tetris, but in 3D. Yeah. I'm trying to think they're kind of like IQ puzzles. Some of them are called or like Blockus is a great game as well for that spatial awareness. It still has them thinking for sure. Most of your kids will love it. Even in high school, <laughs> you have kids at that level. So different games like those, different puzzles in that in that pattern more language heavy is Mad Libs. Those are always a hit as well. They're working with language, but it's fun. And you can get some that are more simple as well, but it's having the kids learn, you know, the different parts of speech. And yeah, just kind of like a space where they can also show their creativity. Like for younger kids, maybe it's having some Play-Doh there and see what they create or just some blocks like different simple machine, loose parts sort of things that they can have out there. And you can just see like how they're using their creativity and how they're problem solving in different ways. That really allows you to see like, what do they think of? What do they imagine? And from that, you can see, oh, this child just, you know, there was that toy lion there and they just made a whole scenery piece to go with it. And how did they do that? They just came up with it from their imagination so you can see a little bit more of the creativity. They're still thinking. They're thinking through through play and through their imagination or through the problem solving, the logic of the puzzles, those sorts of pieces. I love that. That is so helpful. Well, Shelly, thank you so much. For our listeners, where can they find more about you and hear some of the amazing things you're up to? I also have a podcast. It's called Raising Thinkers. I honestly am a new mom and haven't put anything on there for a little while. but. We have episodes in English and Spanish, and that's partially from my desire as a language learner to be continuing to push myself in Spanish, but also because I know there's a lot of parents who just don't have those resources available. So it can be something that you, if you have Spanish speakers at your school, you can share with those parents as well. Yeah. Uh, so it's raising.thinkers. Um, you can find it on Spotify, et cetera. And we also have an Instagram raising.thinkers as well that you can feel free to follow. I'm hoping to get back to posting some more <laughs> episodes soon. But yeah, life as a mom just is a little busier. So it's something for parents, but it's lots of those kind of simple tips and tricks in like bite-sized portions. Most episodes are only about five to 10 minutes long. So it's just something practical that you can do with your child or you can do with your students or you can recommend to parents of your students to help them think and to, to be thinkers as they grow up. So, so, so important. I highly recommend check it out. Raising dot thinkers, especially I know there's a lot of teachers looking for resources to share with Spanish speaking parents. And so the fact that it's in Spanish is such a huge asset 
to many families and just helping encourage parents to, you know, different ways to engage with their kids at home to help stimulate thinking skills. So it's fantastic. We'll put a link in the show notes. Thank you so much, Shelly, for sharing your wisdom with us. This was extremely helpful. And I know the listeners will have so much to take away from this. So we'll have Shelly back again another time because I want to talk to her about math and ELL. So we'll get to that episode another day, but (laughs) for now, that's it. So thanks so much, Shelly. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me in today's episode. All links and resources mentioned can be found in the show notes. If you're looking for even more support and done for you resources created specifically for the needs of ELLs, head to inspiringyounglearners.com. I'll catch you here next week. Until then, take that next step to keep equipping your ELLs.